Hello, and welcome to this live recording from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. This message was given by a guest speaker who visited our Burragoon campus. So sit back, listen in, and enjoy what God's got to say to you. As I said before, we're blessed to have Alan and Helen Meyer with us this week and speaking with us tonight. Just want you to know there will be a time of Q&A after the message tonight, so you can be taking some notes and thinking about a question that you might want to ask them afterwards. Many of you would know Alan and Helen Meyer, but for those of you who don't, uh, they were appointed senior pastors of Careforce Church in 1983, a church that was significant. It grew to well over 2,500 people. They shepherded that place for 20 years, but their greatest passion is to see people healed and restored. That's why they're here with us tonight, that we want to see people healed and restored. So with that in mind, they started Careforce Life Keys, which is a a ministry tool that is now used in over 2,000 churches and organizations in over 20 countries all around the world. Alan has a doctorate from Denver Seminary, and his project there produced a program that you might know. It's called Valiant Man. Helen has a master's in education, a master's in counseling, and she's completed her master's in sexual health at Sydney University in 2017. So they know their stuff. They've authored and developed many programs in their passion to help people. We are extremely blessed to have them with us tonight. Would you welcome Alan up as he comes to speak to us tonight? Well, tonight I've been asked to speak to you about uh, knowing yourself by the fall. I want to do a little bit more than I intended to do Wednesday night and talk a little bit about the, the roots of human experience, the foundations of being human. The way you perceive the problem is the way you perceive an answer. What do you think is wrong with people? What do you think is wrong with you? What do you think the issues are uh, concerning the struggles that you have with life? What do you, where do you think they come from? What do you think the solutions are? Uh, Western civilization at the moment has lost its uh, biblical connections. And as a result, uh, has become a thoroughly materialistic perspective on life. By that I don't mean that just everybody wants bigger cars and more money. I mean the way Western civilization perceives human life is through the lens of evolutionary theory and the Big Bang. So that in the mind of the average Westerner, human beings are nothing more than atoms and molecules. That's all they are. The end product of a mindless mechanistic universe. We are the end product of billions of years of physical and chemical accidents. That's what it means to be human. When you perceive that to be the issue, or perceive that to be the problem where you begin, it, it influences profoundly what you see to be the solution. David Hume said everything with a beginning must have an adequate cause. What is the cause of humanity? What is the cause of the universe? Where, where did we come from? What, what is the origin of life and the origin of mankind? Because the origin says a great deal about our destiny. It says a great deal about the future and a great deal about the answer. David Hume said everything with a beginning must have an adequate cause. That's a basic principle of logic. The um, question, of course, then, what is the cause of the universe? What caused the universe? Um, There was a time when materialists, people who think there is no God, there was no creation, there is no spirit, it's just dumb stuff. It's just stuff, atoms and molecules. The only way that they could kind of sustain that as an explanation was to say, well, the universe never had a beginning. It's always been here. And so if something's eternal, it doesn't have a cause. It's without beginning and it's without end. So if something is eternal, you get, you get away with having to answer the question, well, where did it come from? The answer is it didn't come from anywhere. It's always been. You say, well, how is that possible? I don't know, but the, we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, 
When it comes to the universe, and we know the universe is here. We're dealing with it every, every moment. You feel your body and you know you're part of the universe. It's, it is actually here. Um, where did it come from? Well, there used to be the hope that it didn't come from anywhere. It's always been here. And materialists thought the universe was eternal. In fact, Eddington puts it this way. Philosophically, the notion of a, of a beginning is repugnant to me. I should like to find a genuine loophole. We must allow evolution an infinite amount of time to get started. Problem is this, we now know that that's not true. We now know that the universe is not eternal because there are irreversible processes going on in the universe and the fact is they haven't finished yet and as a result it had a beginning. That's, everybody's clear on that. The universe had a beginning. The question is how did it begin? The there is really only two men in the room when it comes to answering that question. There's only two believable solutions. One is that somebody brought it into being, and the other is that um, there was a Big Bang. And the Big Bang is not only uh, a television program, uh, but supposed to make you laugh. It is a seriously proposed explanation as to why you're here. What most people have never heard is the background to the Big Bang Theory, and that is, well, Big Bang, what banged? What was the big explosion? Where did the bang come from? The average Australian today, who sees himself as an educated person, believes the Big Bang Theory, I personally well, I'm, it's up for grabs for me, but again, we'll come back to that. The average Australian thinks that the Big Bang is the intelligent explanation for why we're here. And everything that follows is an evolutionary theory. Um, very few Australians are aware of what science is actually saying about the Big Bang, and as a result, they can't assess it intelligently. Take, for example... Um, Anthony Kenny, writing in National Geographic 1999, explaining to us what the Big Bang is about. According to the Big Bang theory, the whole matter of the universe began to exist at a particular time in the remote past. A proponent of such a theory, at least if he is an atheist, must believe that the matter of the universe came from nothing and by nothing. So science explanation as to why we're here is that we are the product of absolutely nothing. What blew up? Well, it was nothing. Nothing blew up and it, and it created everything. And out of that explosion in nothing, matter itself evolved. You say, no, no, he, he must, he, that's, that's a joke. No one really believes that. Well, let Paul Davies expand it a little further. Writing in his book, The Edge of Infinity, says the Big Bang represents the instantaneous suspension of physical laws, the sudden abrupt flash of lawlessness that allowed something to come out of nothing. It represents a true miracle. Well, it would. I believe it would. I would agree with that. You're being asked to believe that you came from absolutely nothing. You are the product of nothing. Nothing is your father. It's your origin. Materialism has a proposition. Everything came from nothing. And you've decide at some point in your life whether you buy that. I've just made a decision. I just don't buy it. And I, and I never will. Um... I love the way Kai Nielsen puts it. He said this, Suddenly you, you hear a loud bang and you ask me what made that bang and I reply nothing, it just happened. You would not accept that. No, I wouldn't accept that because everything that has a beginning has to have a cause and nothing is not a cause. Nothing produces nothing, nothing ever could. Materialism would propose to every one of us in our attempt to live out a life that you came from nowhere and you are going nowhere. You are the product of absolutely nothing. One of the interesting things about physics and chemistry, when I was doing physics and chemistry at, at high school, life was a lot simpler because we knew that everything was the product of 
atoms and molecules and that, that atoms were the product of protons, neutrons and electrons. So in year, five, year, year 11 at school, life, you know, well, life was made up out of, out of something. Then the question is, well, what's, an, what's a proton? What's a neutron? What's an electron? And there's been this never-ending search to try to find the quantum of existence, the smallest possible indivisible unit of existence. And as science has struggled with the question is, what is stuff actually made of? What is substance? What is it, what's it made of? The answer seems to be, it's, no, it's made of nothing, it's just a vibration. It's as if somebody spoke and the resonance of that sound is the substance of everything that is. It's a really interesting thing, trying to get to the bottom of what the universe actually is. But materialism will say to you, whatever it is, it came from nothing, it's a result of nothing. Christianity has a fundamentally different proposition to put to the human mind. Christianity says that is not the explanation for why we're here, that everything blooped into existence out of nothing. Christianity would like to say to you there is a different explanation for why we're here, and that is that something never had a beginning. There is something that is and was eternal, and the reality is that both of those statements are extraordinary. How is it possible for anything to have never had a beginning? That's a good question. I don't know, but science has come to this conclusion. Time had a beginning, space had a beginning, matter had a beginning. The cause, therefore, must be outside of time, space and matter. There must be a cause outside of time, space and matter. And that's exactly what the Bible has to say to us about reality. Outside of time, space and matter, there is a person who never had a beginning. There's a person. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that when I was at uni and we'd have these kind of discussions, you know the question that now is coming. Well, who created God? Well, the answer is nobody created God. He never had a beginning. There is no creation of God. He is eternal without beginning and without end. And they'd laugh at you. They'd say, oh, that's really funny. You know, that's the thing about you Christians. You know you live by faith, but we live by reality. Oh, really? So your reality is that the solution to something is absolutely nothing. That's, that's supposed to be the intelligent response. And the stupid response is that something never had a beginning. Now, both of them are extraordinary statements. And one of them is true. One of them is demonstrably true. Because um, here we are, <laughs> blow me down, we're really here. Uh, unless, of course, um, you like Queen's virgin, version of events, you know, is it just a fantasy? Um, is this a real life or is it just fantasy? <laughs> I'm convinced that it's as obvious as the nose on my face, and that's really obvious, that eternity must be true. Eternal, uncreated existence must be true. How do you, why? Because the, the beautiful thing is that one day we will stand in the presence of God and render an account for the view we had of our life. And one of the things in that moment that would be really clear to us that it was a really silly thought that everything came from absolutely nothing. Because even as a six-year-old in grade two, I learned this little piece of mathematics. Nothing plus nothing equals nothing. Nothing times nothing equals nothing. Nothing divided by nothing equals nothing. Nothing produces nothing, that's all nothing could ever do. Therefore, if there is something here now, something has been around without beginning. And I'm just satisfied that I'm here. Because if I am here and something exists now, something is eternal. There was never a time when there was nothing. If there had ever been a time when there was nothing, right now there would be absolutely nothing. 
And there isn't. There is not only something here, it is extraordinary, it is spectacular, it is so profound as as to make you want to worship. I don't know how it's possible to be eternal, but something is. Because if there's something now, there has always been something. And here is my conviction, I am persuaded that eternity is personal, not impersonal. Science has already concluded that matter is not eternal. They've already concluded that. We're left with one option, and that is that personality is eternal. And, of course, that's exactly what the Bible does say. If you want to go back to John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Through him all things were made, and without him there nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life. The Bible says what is eternal is personhood. And personhood is different from impersonal reality. A house brick is impersonal. It doesn't think. It has no dreams. It doesn't long for anything. You know what the word personality means because you are one and that you're as different from a house brick as the chair you're sitting on. You are as different from a house brick as anything in the material world because all it does is exist. It has no hopes or dreams or passions. That's personality. That's personhood. And the interesting thing about personhood is the capacity to know, the capacity to dream things that have never existed and manipulate matter and bring them into being. I own an iPhone. When I was a kid, I've got got an iWatch on my wrist. This was was Dick Tracy stuff when I was a kid. This was unimaginable. Well, except in a cartoon, somebody in imagined the possibilities of what could be done with matter and had such a profound degree of intelligence as to be able to force matter to conform to the dream my iWatch actually exists. It's brilliant. Just leave it alone. It's my watch. Western civilization will teach every kid in school, high school and university this is the reason you are here. In the beginning was the particle, and the particle was with God, and the particle was God. The same was all things are just nothing but dumb stuff, and that is the explanation for you. You are nothing more than a bundle of complex physics and chemistry. Now, the question of personality um, raises its head when you try to figure out, well, how did the universe get here? Is it the result of some impersonal accident or is it the result of some personal and deliberate action? Well, one of the interesting things about personality and mind, you can tell the difference between what a mind is capable of producing and what matter is capable of producing. They're profoundly different. My eye watch is clearly not the product of physics and chemistry. It is the product of a brilliant dream by someone who had the capacity to force matter into this form and make it conform to the dream. And science itself has demonstrated that there is such a significant difference between personality and an impersonal universe that when Carl Sagan was trying to encourage the United States government to to invest billions of of taxpayers' dollars in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, he said, there is a way for us to know if intelligence is out there in the universe, although we may never be able to go there and physically meet them, and that is this. The impersonal universe is incapable of producing information. How about that? That's Carl Sagan did a very long series on evolution. It's an interesting series and almost uh, totally bulldust, but there you go. Carl Sagan. He said, dumb stuff is incapable of creating information. Why? Because information demands, first of all, an idea of what you want to communicate, then the deliberate selection of letters in a known sequence that matches the idea you're seeking to demonstrate. So he said, if we were to tune radio telescopes out there into outer space and hook them up to computers, 
what you hear is relentless random noise. And by the way, this idea is unfolded in a film by Jodie Jody Foster called um, Contact. It's an interesting movie. The whole idea that the way you know if there's a personality out there is whether there's any information coming in your direction. If we could just find a clear piece of information that's proof of a person because it requires an intelligent person to produce information. And as a result, he got billions of dollars for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence and the search for information and money's being spent every day of every week of every year doing exactly that. There's money, big money goes into to that very search. What puzzles me, of course, is that for $2, you could fire up a, a, an electron microscope and look at the most profound information that has ever been discovered in the universe anywhere, and that's in your DNA. If information is proof of intelligence, your DNA is the most densely packed and elaborately detailed assembly of information in the known universe, but we're supposed to believe that came from dumb stuff. And to now step away from this, because this is enough of an introduction to what I want to say, is to simply um, point your uh, awareness to the fact that ever since evolution has been presented to us as the explanation for our origin, no one has ever yet been able to explain four things. When Richard Dawkins was releasing his latest book on evolution called The Greatest Show on Earth, he was speaking to a group of students at Washington State University and behind the scenes he said to them, evolution has never been able to account for four major issues. The first, the origin of life. Well, how could you? Because you see, life is dependent on DNA and you can't have DNA without a cell wall and you can't have a cell wall without DNA. It's another chicken and egg issue. You've got to get it all in one package or it doesn't exist and it doesn't work. How does that happen? I don't know. No one, you never will. The first is the origin of life. The second is the origin of sex. How is it possible for sex to evolve, first of all, from asexual origins and then to have maintained accidental development down two separate pathways, maintaining viability the whole way? No one can explain that. The third is the origin of self-consciousness. And the fourth, the origin of, of morality. Where does morality come from in a purely material universe? Morality is not material. It's not the subject of oxygen and hydrogen and carbon. It's an idea. It's a spiritual thing. It's a non-existent thing, and yet it's more important to us than breath itself. Give me liberty or give me death. The, the thought, the, the, the issue of morality is more profoundly important to the human soul than even bread itself. And uh, I wonder where that would come from in a purely material world. The answer is, who knows? Unless, of course, there is actually a person at the back of the universe and I'm always interested in the way in which human beings have to deal with cognitive dissonance. You believe one thing, but you bump into something that so profoundly contradicts it, it upsets you, and you don't know how to put the two things together. Charles Darwin lived with that tension. See, Charles Darwin is the man who popularised the idea of evolution as being the explanation for the origin of humanity, the origin of the species. Charles Darwin... Um, had a struggle, and that was it. <clears throat> he wrote in a letter to a friend, the sight of a feather in a peacock's tail whenever I gaze at it makes me sick. Why would that be, Charles? Because it looks like an artwork. But you see, it's not. It's just the end product of a mindless machine uh, working on random mutations and the survival of the fittest. So you mean that entire thing is the product of nothing more than the survival of the fittest? Yeah, that's all, that's all it can possibly be. Well, let me ask you a question. Um, how do you survive with a target that large nailed on your butt? <laughs> this is not an aid to survival. This is a challenge to survival. And you see, when Charles Darwin looks at it, something in the depth of his gut cries out and says, I don't think my theory fits. No, it doesn't. It doesn't fit a million other things either, my friend. And as a result, he had cognitive dissonance. I can't make my theory fit with what I see. I feel physically ill. And now we begin to bump into the 
issue of what does it mean to be a human being? I think one of the most magnificent things that we get to tell a broken world is this, that you are not an animal. You are not the end product of a mindless machine. You did not come from nowhere and going nowhere. You are not like a child lost in a supermarket crying for mum and dad and heartbroken because maybe there is no mum and dad. All I can do is wander the aisles of a supermarket buying and selling stuff in a meaningless quest for a destiny. No idea where I'm going. The blackness of the human soul. The Bible says there is a person at the back of all things so profound he can invent DNA. I think you have, one, you have what you could call uh, aha and wow moments. It's funny when they happen to you. It's funny when they happen to you. I was playing golf in the state of Washington and I was walking from the 17th green to the 18th tee and a butterfly just came floating past me, flapping its wings. It glided for a while. It flapped its wings. It glided for a while. And the extraordinary wisdom to be able to reduce that flight, flight mechanism to digital information locked up in the DNA of a caterpillar that would not only allow that thing to develop but then have the skill to be able to use its wings and to fly I thought you who, who are you who are you that you can reduce the future to, to letters the, the, the chemical letters in DNA who are you you were made in the image of that person then God said let us make man in our image in our likeness and so God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him male and female who created them. You are not the end product of a mindless machine. You are not the product of billions of years of physical and chemical accidents. You are made in the image of this extraordinary, uncreated, eternal being. You reflect his glory, stand up and live like a human being. Embrace your dignity and your destiny, you are not an animal. You are a human being made in his image. Now, it helps to understand his image because it's woven into you. And it's stunning the way in which God has given us glimpses of himself. To Moses, for example, he said, make this piece of furniture. This piece of furniture is an insight into the nature of the God who made you in his image. God said to Moses, make a box out of wood and cover it with gold. If ever you wonder if humanity is precious, just think of this, that the God who created matter itself by the sound of his own voice, it seems that matter is nothing more than the vibration of, his, of, the, of the sound of his voice and as a result it obeys him. Every time Jesus opened his mouth, matter obeyed his word because it spoke like a dog responding to the master. The God who created this stuff made a decision to incarnate himself by the Virgin Mary in a human body. God has so dignified our humanity as to embrace it himself. It's just one of the most stunning thoughts that you could ever imagine. Take a wooden box and cover it in gold. A picture of the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. Then he said, put three things inside. Put firstly a copy of the Ten Commandments. God is a moral God to the core of his being. Why does morality exist? Because there is a moral person who never had an end, who never had a beginning and will never have an end. And the only reason that you are a moral being and you are moral to the core of your being, you can never extract it. It can be perverted, but it can never be extracted. You are so moral to the core of your being that you live with this endless sense of right and wrong, truth and error, just and unjust, righteous and unrighteous. It helps us and it plagues us. It is fascinating the degree to which humanity is fascinated by law. I mean, half the television and films and books we ever read are written about love. There's, the, there's one huge fascination with the human heart, love, requited love, unrequited love, love failed, love succeeded. And the other is law. 
the police, the criminal, the law courts, the judges. Half of of our entertainment is built around this endless fascination with law. Because you're moral to the core of your being, it'll never go away because it was original in the God who created the heavens and the earth and it's in you and it'll never go. You've got to learn to manage it well. Second thing is he said, put in there a pot of manna because man cannot live by bread alone. Jesus said, I'm the true bread who came down from heaven. Every one of us needs to know we need to feed on God. We need God. We were not made to do life separated and alienated. We were made to live our life in partnership. And if you want the short answer as to, well, why did God create us in the first place? It's because he's having a family. God is creating a family to inhabit eternity. And the question is whether you will qualify. And thank God it's not a how high can you jump qualification. It's who will you trust? Will you trust Jesus? Will you trust the father of life? He just simply invites you to trust him. If you will entrust him, you can come home. If you won't trust him, you're going to have to live on your own resources. Like the prodigal son, you're out there doing it, sitting in pig's pipe pens or still having a party. But until you're willing to trust him, you'll never be able to find your way home. The third thing... Aaron's rod that budded. Humanity is crying out for an encounter with the supernatural. That supernatural rod that budded, even though it was not connected to a tree, it budded blossoms and almonds and produced fruit. Why? Because the power of God had touched it and you were created to be touched by the power of God and produce supernatural fruit in your own life. It's what you were born for. Then on top of this lid, God said to Moses, take a single piece of gold and beat it out into three elements. Firstly, a golden seat, which is where they used to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifices. It was called the mercy seat. The Bible says in the New Testament, Christ is our mercy seat. It's a picture of Jesus again. He's the box and he's part of the lid. Then two cherubim coming up out of that single piece of gold. The Bible says their faces were towards one another and towards the mercy seat. God is a Trinitarian being who has done life from all eternity in blazing intimacy. If Allah was really the source of life, if God was a great singularity, If the Trinity was not true, then the ultimate truth about eternity is that God inhabits eternity in solitary confinement, singularity. You've got to ask yourself, in a world like that, where would love ever come? Could you ever say that a God who is a singularity of person in a singularity of substance, could you ever say of that God, God is love? You could say God invented love, but you couldn't say he is love because love is a statement about relationship. The Bible says that the God who is their Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity has lived in a blazing fire of intimacy. You came forth from a God who's not boring. You came forth from a passionate God. One of the greatest challenges about being a human being is that you were not created in the image of a great white blob. You were created in the image of a God who could say to us, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. God is passionate to the core of his being and everything he creates is filled with passion. It's one of the challenges of life. It's dangerous. I mean, life would be a lot more dangerous if we weren't passionate creatures, if we didn't have longings and passions. But God could never relate to a child who was passionless because God is not a passionless, passionless white blob. He is a passionate fire of intimacy. You came from intimacy, not from an explosion in nothing. And your destiny is not a black hole. Your destiny is a fire of intimacy. It's what heaven is all about. The passion of everlasting friendship and kindness and connection. And they did their life with their faces toward one another. It's wired into you. You learn what you learn by reflection. You watch a child learn a language. It's a stunning thing. Language is one of the most precious gifts we have in life. The ability to communicate. How do you get it? There must be a big university somewhere that takes all these little children and teaches them language. It's not how it happens. We are created in the, Im- in the, in the image of a God whose, whose uh, entire being, is life is done face to face. 
And in that environment, we are created, and, and in our brains, they are reflected in what's called mirror neurons. Mirror neurons are those neurons that when you see something, you experience it. It's not that you just understand it and see it. You feel it. It's what makes pornography so dreadfully dangerous. It's what makes living in a violent family so dangerous. It's what makes being raised in a healthy family so healthy. Because what you see through the mirror neurons, you become. Your building blocks are built by reflection. Who you hang around with and who you observe is who you become. And all you have to do is put a child in a family. Just put him in a, in a family. Put him in a crib. And he just lies there. And people come walking through and they go... And weird Uncle Harry comes in and he does... He says, hey, pull my finger. Oh, no, don't do that. Don't we know Uncle Harry. <laughs> and in that environment, a child wired up like the God who created that child in his own image... All they have to do is be surrounded by reflections and they're sucking that stuff in and half before you know it, you hear the miracle coming out. Mama, dada, no. <laughs> Who taught that kid to say no? Oh, you didn't have to have a teacher, mate. He's got you. He's in your household. He learns. And, you know, we, so, we, we learn our family of origin so precisely that you can hear a two-year-old child say one sentence, and in one sentence you'll know if that kid was born in New Zealand or Australia or South Africa or North America or Britain. Because we don't just pick up the big building blocks of grammar and vocabulary. We learn our environment so precisely made in the image of that God that the musical lilt we call accent is inscribed in us just from hanging around in a household. The miracle of being a human being. And because we are made in the image of a of God who is a fire of intimacy, there are things we know about his heart and there are things we know about our heart. Firstly, he is a person and that's why I am one too. It's an amazing thing, personality, the ability to know the un and understand and communicate. It's how you run a school. I was a teacher for years. The question sometimes would be, not is there intelligence in the universe, the question was, is there any in my classroom? <laughs> well, how, do you, how would you know? Well, you give them pencils and pieces of paper and you ask a question. And then a personality can take an idea and deliberately form letters one after another. It's called sentences. And as they write their sentences, you get an idea as to whether there's any intelligence going on here. It's called examinations. It's an amazing thing. Being a person. God's personality is infinite. Mine is not. It's why I live and worship, because I understand my limitations. Yes, I'm made in his image, but I am not infinite. I'm a finite being. And if I'm going to be wise and smart, I've got to stop acting as if I am God. I've got to realize there is only one God and I'm not it. And if he is a father and he loves his children, I need to listen to him. I'm finite, he's infinite. He is Trinity and I'm kind of Trinity on the inside. Out of that come certain realities that translate right into the human heart. Trinity is intimacy. The word that makes sense of the Trinity for me is this, intimacy. Face to face. Total commitment to welfare. And as a consequence, you were made in his image and there are three things that have been woven into you too. The first is a deep, passionate desire for acceptance. We live for it. Facebook will kill it. Snapchat may do it no good. But you have a deep longing for it. That's why people get married even after they've been divorced once or twice. They're just desperate to find a place where they're accepted. Secondly, we don't just want to be accepted because people pity us. We want to be accepted and embraced because we feel like we're seen as valuable, that we bring something to the table, that we have something to offer. We have a deep desire to be valued. And thirdly, we have a deep desire to find a tribe. It's part of what football teams are all about. Fact is, people just love to belong to stuff. They like to feel that they're part of a tribe, part of something that's bigger than themselves, 
because we are made in the image of an intimate Trinitarian God and there is this deep desire to find a home, to find a family God. The Bible says God takes the solitary and he puts them into families because that's what we were made for. Everyone is, having, is, is crying to find a place of belonging that is secure and all of this, all of this stuff comes to us by reflection. It's why our environment is so critical to our healthy development The Bible puts it this way, and all of us, as with unveiled face, because we continue to hold in the Word of God as in a mirror. That's Bible. Those mirror neurons make our environment critical to the way we do life. You can't build a personality autonomously. It is built in the context of community. And so it's rebuilt in the same way. That's why a healthy church is one of the greatest places to do a walk with God. Uh, The greatest place to do a walk with God is not in a monastery or or being a monk up in a cave somewhere. It's to be surrounded by loving people who are seeking to love and forgive and be as honest and as transparent as they can be because in that environment, what is mirrored back to us is heaven itself. So now we come to our subject. All of that was introduction We'll get through uh, just a little of who we are. That's who we are by creation, just by the way. That stuff that I just talked about is woven into you. I don't care whether you believe it or not. Well, I do. I care whether you believe it or not. But you see, believing it doesn't, or not believing it doesn't change anything. You are what you are. And if you are the end product of a mindless machine, that's all you are. But if you're not, if you're made in the image of that kind of God, there's stuff in you that'll never be taken away. And without understanding that, you'll never understand its place in your life. You'll never respond to it appropriately. Now comes the sad part. All of that's, in many ways, just the great stuff. The great stuff. We are not the end product of a black hole. A black hole is not what awaits us. Eternity resonates with the hope and the opportunity of never-ending intimacy. Now comes the fall. Um, If the Bible didn't teach it, you'd you'd have to make it up because something is drastically wrong with the human species. Something is drastically wrong. And this is just a simple version. Um, I unpack this more in a series I do called The Search for Life. But this is enough. This is a short version and I've got five or ten more minutes and then I'm going to let you ask questions. But this is where our brokenness comes from. You were made for heaven and you were made for God. Don't believe it? Go try to make sense out of life. All the best to you. But you were still made for heaven and you're still made for God whether you believe it or not. See, I had an experience when I was five years of age that helped me figure something out. My mindset or my point of view in my brain doesn't really change reality a whole lot. It changes the way I behave, but not reality. See, I I climbed up on the garage roof when I was five years old, and I cannot explain to you how this thought ever occurred to me, but as I was standing on the garage roof, I believed I could fly. I truly believed it. I believed it so much I could vision it. I visioned myself leaping out from the garage roof, gliding across the backyard and touching down gently out near the privet head somewhere. And it was a very attractive proposition to me. I thought, that's, that's a wonderful thought. In, f- in full faith that what I just thought was true, I stick my little arms out and I launched out. My mother told me years later she was watching me through the kitchen window. She saw me come to the edge of the garage roof and said, Alan shouldn't be up there. She saw me put put my arms out. She said, he wouldn't do that. And then you did. She said, from that moment, I realised I may never know what you're going to do next. I truly believed I could fly. As I lay gasping for breath on the concrete below, having swan-dived, belly-whacked, wham, onto the concrete... I said to myself, Al, there is a limit to how much the universe is willing to bend to your perceptions. Let's see if we can't understand the universe a little better next time before we do something as radical as that. You were made for heaven and you were made for God. You've got to know this. 
that you will never you will never truly function well as a human being until you do what Jesus said he said take my yoke upon you and learn from me we were never designed to do life solo we were designed to do life in harmony with a partner the spirit of god god's spirit god's grace and mercy that we wouldn't be doing it alone and as a result God knows this, that this is what your life is about. Your entire life is an experience um, of probation. Because the Bible says it's given unto man once to die, and after this comes the judgment. The whole purpose of life is God's desire for you to qualify as a child. But in that in qualifying, all it requires you to do is that you return to trust him. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust. Just trust him. And that's why in the garden God said to Adam and Eve, all of the garden is yours, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, leave it alone. You are not eternal and you are not infinite. You will think something's good because you don't have any idea what it means far enough down the track. You'll think something's bad, but you have no idea whether it's bad until you see further down the track. I'm the only one who can reliably tell you if something's good or evil. Leave the good and evil stuff up to me. Just trust me. If you trust me, I've created an amazing garden. And into that garden came a slimy creep, dragging with him the silent chains of our future bondage. He came to my mother and said, Hath God said you uh, shall not eat of any of these trees? And she said, no, that's not what God said. God said we could eat from all of the trees. But there's one that is a, it's symbolic of his sovereignty. We're to leave that one alone. Oh, I hate to tell you this, but you know, uh, I get cut my tongue out actually. But uh, the, the day you eat from that, you, you'll be like God. Because you see, the only liberty, the only real life you'll ever know is when you're in charge. Do, it, do your own thing. Do it my way. She'd walked past that tree many times before and never given another thought. But today it just seemed to be so flipping attractive. Oh, goodness. Oh, I've got a, got a bit of an appetite for it. And that's exactly what happens when we, as a human being, gets alienated from the father of life. Passions spring up within us that are beyond our power to control. One of the greatest needs we have for a successful life is to find ourselves in communion with the goodness of the father of life. And in that crazy moment, my mother and my father decided to breach their relationship of trust. They breached the relationship by an act of treachery and they decided they'd give it a go. And in that moment, something in the human heart shattered and it shattered from that day to this. It's been shattered in my heart, it's been shattered in your heart. And it has a whole bunch of consequences. And you read them right here in the Bible. The Bible says the moment after my first mother decided to alienate herself from the father of life, this is what the Bible says. The eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. Suddenly, into human experience came these three words. Insecurity, vulnerability and inadequacy. And we have struggled with them ever since. Um, human beings left to themselves, alienated from God, will struggle with these emotions all through life. And you can do lots of things to try to fix it. But you need to know where it comes from. It came from our alienation from the father of life. The next thing that happened in our human experience was this. We had now provoked God into a role he does not prefer. God has one name which he loves above every other name. It's the name Father. He's the Father of life. But if you provoke him, he will guard the sanctity of heaven. He will never permit heaven to become hell. And I thank God for it because I don't want to live in hell forever. I don't want to live in a world that is shattered and broken where people are murdered and raped and abused and injustice is a daily occurrence from one end of the globe to the other. I am hoping 
that my life will have a chance to live in the kind of the creation that God intended. It's called heaven. But that's ruled over by a father. And in that moment, we provoked God to become a judge. He put on the cap and he put on the robe of a judge. And instantaneously, a new thing had entered into our life, and that's called guilt and shame. Our moral awareness continually judges everything we do, others do. And over and over again, it's from right, it's from the judge on the inside that our hearts condemn ourselves. How we need a judge that's bigger than us to lift that condemnation and tell us it's well with our soul. Then comes the next thing, and that is fear. Bible says that the very one who created us came into the garden to meet with what the children that yesterday ran to his presence with joy. Now he's hiding, my father's hiding him behind a bush, terror in terror and fear of the very one he was created to love and, re- and relate to. And I guarantee there'll be some of us sitting here tonight. You, you don't see God as someone that you love. You see God as someone you, 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 you'd like to, to never, you'd wish you'd never thought, heard of the idea. You wish you could remove God because he makes you afraid. You, 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 he makes you feel judged and, and you're, you're still in this relationship here. And as a result, that life has fear. It's got torment. And the tragedy is you run away from the very one who, who can help you. This is the consequence of the fall. Then out of that comes denial and blaming and self-deception. These are fundamental consequences of a broken relationship with God. And then we found ourselves kicked out of the garden. Now, as this stuff unfolds in life, here are three of the biggest consequences. The first is this, codependency. We were made in the image of a God of intimacy and there is a longing within us to somehow find approval. Codependency is when I am willing to bend my life out of shape to get you to approve of me. And I'm willing to damage my life. I'm willing to do criminal things to get you to approve of me because I need your approval so badly, I need it more than I need God's approval. It's a human brokenness called codependency and God can fix it. Then comes the impact of your family systems. You're raised in a dysfunctional family... Stuff gets woven into your being because of those mirror neurons. That means you will now carry it to the third and the fourth generation. Unless someone brings healing to you and begins to help you reconstruct a different kind of life. And it's what ends up creating national brokenness. And then, of course, one of the biggest, that is, the feeling that there's something wrong with me that will never be fixed. An inadequacy that makes me feel like I'm hopeless. Shame is probably one of the most potent drivers in human experience. And if we had more time, we'd open up that and spend some more time on it. But here's, here we are. This is, the, this is the consequence of the fall. And as a result, our hearts are broken and our tendency, like a radio set, is to tune into negative stuff way more easily than we tune into positive stuff. It's why one word of criticism can bug a person for 50 years in their life. My dad told me I would never be any good. Or I had a school teacher that told me I was useless and I was embarrassed in front of my whole class. And that one thing will stick like a glob of unworthiness to the human soul and and almost become the glasses through which they define their life for the rest of their life because we're tuned to the negative. You think about this. You work in an office and there's 20 people in the office. 19 of them like you. One of them hates your guts. Who do you wake up in the middle of the night thinking about? You don't wake up in the middle of the night with warm, fuzzy feelings because 19 people at work think you're okay. You wake up with a knot in your stomach because one person there hates your guts and I'm going to have to see him again tomorrow. And your, your belly's not is knotted and you, you feel sick and unwell because we tune to the negative so much more easily than the positive. Um, It means that criticism hurts us more than praise heals us. They reckon that when you're raising a kid, it takes 10 positive words to cancel a single negative. I think sometimes it takes 1,000 positive words to cancel a single negative. 
It's why we can't afford criticism as a way of communication. Failure. We, we, we're so bugged by failures and an experience of rejection is just terrible. And it means that we have a tendency to focus far too much on our performance and on the opinions of other people. And now I'm going to stop and let you ask questions. Here is the healing antidote. A man who took on human form from heaven, the second person of the Trinity, who took on human form to, to take our place before the judgment throne of a holy God so that God could take off the judge's cap and take off the judge's robe and return to his preferred role of being a father. God's preferred role is father. And if you will let him, the ministry of Jesus will change your relationship with God from one of fear to one of profound support, kindness and help. You need to know that you are forgiven, that you are embraced and that you are deeply and permanently loved by God. And if ever you can find your way into that space in a, real, in a reality, your humanity will flourish under the goodness of God. Whenever you get a group of Christians together, God's in the middle. He's here. The Holy Spirit is in this place. And the Holy Spirit is towards you, not against you. He's not your enemy. One of the ways you can know when God is drawing near to you is that your heart goes soft. You were made for heaven. And whenever I get near and God is doing something, I just start to cry. Because, see, I'm like that kid in a supermarket. The world is interesting. It has to be because he created it to be a delight. But it's so broken and I'm so, you get surrounded. You hear so many stories of pain and suffering in people's lives. You just want Jesus to come and bring this whole thing to an end. And often I'm like that kid in the supermarket. Lord, I'd just, I just like to go home. I don't want to hear one more bad story. You cry. You may have come tonight, and I don't know where you are. I don't know why, what brought you to church or where you, where you are. But I may have answered or addressed an issue that for you was a, like it was a roadblock. You, you didn't know how to get past a certain question, and it was a roadblock, and maybe tonight I moved it. It might have just, that could be a miracle. I could have just moved a roadblock. And on, on the inside, you feel soft. You feel, okay, I, I think I get some of that, and... I don't think I am an animal. I think if, if I really mean something and I have an eternal future, I think I want to come home. Um, I think I'd like to come home. It's really important to act while your heart's soft because you walk outside, conversations happen, you start watching TV, you get, get involved in life and often heart, the, heart, the heart just goes hard again. And you kind of withdraw into like a shell. But while you're in a moment like this, they, they, it's like your heart goes soft and you know, you know what, well, I think I could, even, I could just reach out and say to God, would you, would you come into my life? Would you touch my life? Would you bow your heads with me for one moment? Would everyone just bow your heads with me? If that's you tonight, and right where you are, I'm not going to embarrass you, I'm not going to make you walk out the front and say, show people what you're doing. But maybe tonight there's a softness in you and in your heart there's a cry. I would, if, if God would love me, I'd really like him to. I'd like to come home. If that's you, I want to pray for you right where you are. Just, just let me see your hand and I'll know it's you and I'll pray for you. Good on you, sweetheart. I'll pray for you in just one moment. You're too. I'll pray for you in just one moment. Let me see your hand. Yeah, is that your hand? Is that you? Good on you. Pray with you in just a minute. You too, sir. We'll pray in just one moment. Good on you. I'll pray with you in just a moment. Who'd like to come home tonight? Who'd just like to say to God, been wandering around, wondering what life's about? If you were real, would you be real to me? Because I'd like to come home. I want you to take your hand. Those of you who raised your hand, take your right hand, put it on your heart right there. Just put it right here. That's the way. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer because you need to use your own lips. 
you need to say it with your own, own just say it out with your own mouth. And, and to, just so you won't be embarrassed, we'll all say it with you. But say it with your own mouth. Because God loves it when we ask. Jesus said, ask and it shall be given. And I'm going to just lead you in prayer. Let's say these words together. Heavenly Father, I need help. I've made a lot of mistakes. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I've heard about Jesus. I've heard about his death. That he died for me. Forgive my sins. Come into my life. And I will follow you all the days of my life. Amen. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you come to them and let them feel in here the warmth of a reconnection, that they're not alone? They're not alone. And I ask you to bless them. And let this night be a night of healing and restoration. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. I hope it wasn't over the top too heavy for you. I just think every now and then that young adults deserve to have something pursued in just a little bit of depth. Because they've got great brains. And they face great questions. And those questions deserve great answers. God bless We hope you enjoyed this message from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. If you'd like to talk to someone about what you've heard today, then you can contact the team at Mount Pleasant Baptist Church by calling the office during office hours on 9329-1777. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to your company again soon. God bless.